Listeners, you are listening to Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. This is a podcast where we friends get together and talk about a horror movie, which we will spoil. First, we talk about Recently Watched, which we try not to spoil. And we thank the Moonrays for giving us that song, Intro Creature Features, at the top of the show. You can find their music digitally on Apple Music and Amazon and where you can buy it. And say hello to them on Facebook where they are, The Moon Dash Rays. And we are not professional critics. No, no, we are just your hosts. I'm Richard. I'm here with Will. Hello. And Jolien. Bonjour. All right. We're going to talk about a French film. So, um, yeah, that's cool. A <laughs> little, uh, little language in there. Pardon our French. Um Guys, recently watched. Do you have any? No. No? Busy no. week? I've been reading the uh, book you lent me, uh, Nightmares and Ecstasy. Oh, okay. Uh, the Ed Wood book? Yeah. So it's, it's like a, it's an assemblage of quotes from yeah. people he worked with. And, oh, wow. Um, himself. And uh, arranged into chapters by, you know, the movies or uh, particular characters. Uh, you know that that were in the Edward circle. Yeah. So there's like a chapter just on Criswell Vampire Vampire and Tor Johnson. The story is about Tor Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anything you want to share? Stuff I'm not going to share. Uh huh. <laughs> that, that particular his adventures in India. Oh wow. Okay. Mm. That'll make you see him differently. Okay. Uh, it, that kind of quickly reminds me of uh, Orson Welles being the the real monster when you were telling some stories about like oh if that story about Todd Johnson in India is true then oh it, yeah oh well, that's terrible that outdoes anything Orson Welles definitely did definitely oh good 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 we we, need, <laughs> we need mythology <laughs> so you've not read it yourself no I have not okay oh. No, I lent it to you. That first, was so. it was yeah, Will's. Okay. But and did. I don't remember the India story, so I have to reread it. But I haven't read that book since nineteen ninety four or whenever it came out. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but there's lots of stories about him hanging hanging out with Bela Lugosi and mm-hmm. getting trashed and running around graveyards. Oh wow. That's something you would hope to be true and it's actually true. Gotta love that. Any other good reads? Uh, no, I've been reading that one. Um, reading uh, Omnibus collection of the first Thor stories from Marvel. We should just call this recently consumed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the being... Thor that Stanley invented. 
<laughs> Stanley and his brother. Yeah, Stanley wrote the original sagas of the Norse uh-huh. gods. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and reading uh, the Elric saga, the Michael Moorcock oh, okay. fantasy series. Yeah. Just, just wonderful. So cool. So um, recently watched, so Will, you don't have anything? And Jolie? And I've you- watched... Uh, couple more episodes of vice principal oh you did how was it how was, is it coming along nicely or uh, yeah, i like it a lot so they're kind of keeping you hooked in yeah what's that about uh it's another danny mcbride show it's about a pair of vice principals in a high school in uh south carolina who the principal retires to take care of his ailing wife and so they both think that they're going to be principal um but they bring in a new person to be principal so they both have to team up mm. to take down the new principal <laughs> and hopes to get her to resign um danny mcbride plays a principal named neil gamby who is sort of authoritarian uh pretty immature uh blowhard moronic tyrant yeah and then uh uh walton goggins plays lee russell the other vice principal who is fairly evil but over the top and fun because it's walton goggins um yeah it's 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 a lot of fun um try not to burn through them too quickly yeah, you want to just sort of savor it? Yeah, a little bit. They, they've they finished the series, right? Yeah, it finished a while ago because now they're on to Righteous Gemstones. Okay. Which I'm going backwards, I oh, guess. okay. Although I've seen most of Eastbound and Down. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've seen two or three episodes of each of those shows, and I can recognize that they're good, but then it's like finding where it's available and then the time to watch. That's how I felt about uh, It's Always Sunny. Yeah. Like, I've watched it, and I've liked it, but I've just had no drive to watch, to seek it out. Yeah, and there's like 15 or 18 seasons of yeah, it. Yeah, there's know? a zillion seasons. I'm like, uh, no. I'm never going to get through it all. Yeah, that's why I like Vice Principals. It's like, oh, it's like 16 episodes for two seasons. Yeah. That's fine. That's plenty. Yeah. Yeah, then you can feel like you've finished something. Yeah. Not like you're being shamed for not, you know, completing something in your life. I'll never be able to get to this. That's why we need the 90-minute podcast. Yeah. Where we watch 90 minutes of a movie. And you can get over your fear of not seeing everything. You know, and I kind of feel like, you know, maybe we grew up in a time where you were told to finish everything on your plate. Yes. And it's like, well, what if it sucks or... You know, what if I can't? It's too bad. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to like stuff yourself until you're over full because there's more peas on your plate. Well, with me, it was like stuff like uh, I hated uh, fatty meat and gristle. Oh, Ooh, yeah. man. And they just yeah. make me chew that until it was done. Ugh. It's horrible. Did you have a dog? No. Oh, see, that's why you need a dog. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and what makes me say that is like I feel like now I'm at a point where if I start a movie and it's just bad, I don't need to find out in what way does it continue to suck. Mm. I can just shut it off. <laughs> I tried to watch a Bigfoot documentary yes. and the production values 
were so like um, nine, early 1990s instructional film kind of, you know, like that level of music and titles and transition wipes and all that kind of stuff uh, paired with, and I wish I could remember it to warn people. It's on Tubi. Look up Sasquatch documentaries. You'll oh. get about five minutes in. <laughs> Um, and they had so like, many on that channel. oh yeah, it's, it's, it's lousy with them. And, um, they had like, uh, CG, uh, interstitials of Bigfoot walking through the forest that were about as good as that dire straits video, uh, <laughs> money for nothing. Wow. Yeah. It was about that good. Um, yeah. I got over my, uh, fear of not finishing movies thanks to Robin Williams toys. Oh, did you ever watch toys? I don't think I made, I got up and walked out. It was the first movie I ever walked out of. It was so bad. Yeah. I don't think I ever watched and it. I decided Robin Williams sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, even though, you know, he died tragically and all that stuff, you could say not everything he did was a gem. Most of what he didn't, most of what he did wasn't any good. <laughs> there you go. Uh, his stand-up comedy album was just twelve, him. twice as many jokes, but only be half as funny. Yeah, yeah, they're coming at you fast and furious and super it's sucky. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's all I see when I see Robin Williams is just cocaine. In not everything that he did, but yeah, uh, his stand-up comedy or any talk show appearance, <laughs> he was coked up out of his mind. Yeah, yeah. Not to speak ill of the dead, but uh, he, he had... Eh, it's been long enough. <laughs> yeah. It's too late now. Yeah. It's too late. Yeah. I guess we already did. But I never liked him anyway, so it's not like I changed my mind. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so John Candy is no longer with us. I can, you know, I said then, and I'll say now, that he was the same character in a lot of the movies he did, because they wrote the character for him. Yeah. Like, just do that thing he did in the last movie. People love it. Okay. Fine. He was good at it. He was a funny guy. You know, I love Iggy Pop, but he only wrote one song. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, you know, fans... It's a hell of a song, though, so I'll give him that. You know, uh, somebody told Joseph Heller once, why didn't you write another Catch-22? And he said, I wrote one. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) How many do you want? How many do you really need? It's it's perfect, you know? Um... Before we get onto the subject, which we eventually, I promise, will, um, I have to ask you guys, okay, when, when someone, cause last episode you mentioned Spike Lee. Uh-huh. Okay. When, when a movie is reminiscent to somebody of, of, of Hitchcock, what, uh-huh. do, what do people call it? Hitchcockian. Hitchcockian. Uh, it's reminiscent of David Lynch, Lynch, Lynchian. Mm-hmm. Um, so Spike Lee, Lee-esque? Yeah. Okay, I had a great deal of trouble um, parsing what people were talking about when they would say something was Dickensian. I'm like, who the fuck is Dickensy? I don't, am I the only person who doesn't know who Dickensy is? <laughs> it's like, why isn't it Dickinsonian? Uh, it's Charlie Dickensy. <laughs> Charlie Dickensy. <laughs> I believe he wrote the electric acid Kool-Aid test. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's if it's similar to Charles Dickens, shouldn't it be Dickinsonian? Dickens-esque? 
Dickens esque. Because the S too close to the end of. Probably. Uh, yeah. Who writes the rules on this stuff? Uh, they were written a long time ago, and I can't remember them all. But they are there. All right. You know, like how you're supposed to put, you know, adjectives in an order. Or okay. Today, descriptions and. Today I learned there is no author named Dickensie. No Dickensie. <laughs> So, Ken Dickensy, Kenneth Dickensy the third. Um, any other recently watched or uh, recently read? No, I think that's it. All right, I'll get mine out of the way, and then we'll talk about this uh, movie. Um, a couple weeks ago, knowing we were going to watch this, I watched Diabolique, mm-hmm. uh, which I feel like I had seen the original. I definitely had seen the remake, um, but this one. Uh, Holy wow! This was this was good uh, as a rewatch. Um, not everybody wants to dig into these uh, French films and you know watch things in black and white, but you should. You really should. This one. Uh, what's worse than how to get rid of the body is where the hell did the body go? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's all I really want to say about it, so I don't spoil it yeah. too much. But. Uh, this woman is suffering at uh, the hands of her brutish husband. Uh, uh, Christina is, is suffering at the hands of her brutish husband, Michael, or Michelle, sorry. Um, she inherits a boarding school that they run. Uh, he's sort of the tyrant in charge of it. And uh, she and uh, one of the teachers, who is one of Michelle's former lovers, decide to kill him. And... Um, Hilarity ensues. I say that a lot, but I can't say too much about this without starting to spoil it. But they're hatching a plot and you're not sure if there's going to be a double cross or if they really are working in tandem or if one of them's playing the other. Are they lovers? Yeah. Are they or aren't they? Is there a long game going on? Right. Yeah. Because there's a, yeah, a lesbian love story is heavily implied, but never explicitly announced. And this movie being from what, 55, is it? I believe so. They certainly would not, even in France, have want to put that out in the mainstream in a film. So I kind of feel like it's there. Mm. And uh, But I do feel like maybe the one woman is like, yeah, it's there because that's my vehicle to get this done and then I'm out. I, I, it's hard to say, but the suspense in this one is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think anyone who's not... Did you call this Hitchcockian? Yes, I call it... Yeah, because it didn't, it didn't give me vibes of Dickensie, so I would say Hitchcockian, yes. No, not enough orphans. Right. Yeah, I love that Hitchcocky. Yeah, Hitchcocky. Hitchcocky. Yeah, that's, that's when, you're, yeah, when you're really uh, uh, sure of yourself, but, uh, but, <laughs> but you're suspenseful about it. Yeah. Yes, psycho with an exclamation point. Yes. Um, yeah, that one. Uh, listeners who who are into the history of horror and suspense that has one of the great moments of terror in movies. Mm, which one are you thinking of? Diabolique. Yeah, yeah. Which which scene? I'm not going to give it away, but there's the you'll know it. There's a scene which is like one of the just. Just people are just frozen with terror. I'm trying to remember which scene we're talking about. Cause, okay, so I watched this two weeks ago. I'm like, what, what am I forgetting? Because I, I keep thinking of the swimming pool scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
yep, Halloween borrowed that. I feel like mm-hmm. John Carpenter said that thing from that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make that my thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, yeah. I I can't help but think of the swimming pool scene where the oh the ball went in the pool. You know, the pool that's full of leaves and it's all green. And yeah, that, that turns up in uh, is it the house and sorority row. Yeah, they like, dump the body in the pool. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Like, do you guys remember like a few months ago when I told you about the guy that was lying on the street and I thought it was like uh-huh. a mannequin because it was just a couple weeks after Halloween. It's like, ah, oh, someone stole someone's. And then the dude kind of moved. <laughs> uh, I started thinking about how creepy it would be like if he would just show up randomly far enough away to where you couldn't really. <laughs> but then you go around the corner and, you know, like I should drive back around and maybe call 911 and he's gone. Mm. Yeah. You look out late at night because you heard the dogs barking or something, and then you see him lying under the streetlight. Never walking, just lying on his back. Lying there getting soaked by your automatic watering machine. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, we have the the cat watering uh, sprinkler system out there now. Um... Yeah, so uh, other than Diabolique, I watched the Andy Warhol Diaries almost all the way through. I have one episode left. I will tell listeners who want to look into like the evolution of Andy Warhol as an artist and a performer, <clears throat> if, we're, if we're being fair. He did a lot of, uh, I, I would say his life was a performance art in yes. a lot of ways. Um, very troubled individual. You know, he came from a blue collar town where he was uh, a gay kid who just um, wasn't going to fit in, was going to get bullied if he didn't have an older brother who put a stop to a lot of that. Uh, and was just naturally a very good artist. He did the right thing, got the hell out of uh, Pittsburgh and <laughs> went to New York where he could be himself and express himself and actually develop a career first as a commercial artist and then an artist and a working fine art artist. Um, a lot of people think of him as sort of a huckster or a scam artist in the art world, but now I just felt like no. he reinvented the model of what it is to be a working artist. And you get a lot of that great story on like, well, what did he do? How did he do it? And why did people start paying a lot of money for his art? And because this, this docu-series is based on, and this is on Netflix, by the way, uh, it's based on diary entries, which were published, mm-hmm. uh, and, and they, they're read, I, if I understood it right, uh, by an AI, uh, program is reading it in his voice. So That's it, creepy. It is kind of creepy because it lacks a little bit of expression, but not enough to where if you didn't know that you'd figure it out, it's kind of weird. Um, but then there was something in some fine print that flashed by too quickly and I, something about an actor. So maybe they, maybe they had to fill in the blanks with an actor reading in his voice too, or certain words that they didn't have. I don't know. Maybe Hmm. names, maybe they didn't have enough of the names mentioned from interview footage. Anyway. Um, so what you do get that's fun and positive and everything is you get to see the early days of, of how he got the idea to do what he called the factory and this cast of characters that he sort of assembled and how there was a chance meeting with a guy who ended up being his kind of long-term boyfriend who lived with him, uh, Jed, who ended up having his own career 
as a result of meeting Andy Warhol's rich and famous friends. And he told Andy, this is a hoarder situation. This is a mess. This is clutter. I need, let me decorate the the house, you know, the, the apartment in New York. And he did a beautiful job. And all of the friends that came over were like, who's your decorator? So, (laughs) well, it's, it's Jed. So he ended up you know, becoming a very sought after highly paid decorator Nice, and had a career of his own. So when things started to kind of fall apart, uh, he, he had something to fall back on. Uh, and, and stories like that are really charming and, and interesting. And, and, you know, there's some sadness in some of the stories. And of course it bears mentioning that the specter of AIDS looms large, you know, yeah. beginning at a certain point in what's happening in the, Early 80s in New York, um, mid-80s, it, it gets pretty dark for a while there. Um, but yeah, Andy, some listeners may not know, was shot by kind of this off-her-rocker woman that was part of the factory. And he could have easily died from that. There's so much stuff there that, that if you find uh, that you want to know more about Andy Warhol, who he was and what he did and the people around him, this is, this is a great series. It's, it's done in, I think six episodes. Hmm, okay. I've watched five of them. There's a pretty good movie called I shot Andy Warhol. I watched that about, too. Uh, Valerie Solanas. Yeah. And, uh, Lily Taylor plays her. Yeah. She does a really good job. Yeah, It's a great movie. Yeah. That does give you more of the story. And, uh, that kind of catches up to where uh, I am now, which is... I have to check it out. I... Having watched Eyes Without a Face with you guys. So, um, Jolene, did you rewatch it? I mean, I know you've seen it so yep. many times. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, does anything new pop out when you rewatch this? Um, I I love... Well, I love this film. Um, it's got so many layers to it. There's so much about uh, identity... Mm-hmm. in there there's some um the idea of uh masks as faces and faces as masks yeah uh um it occur, uh you know what when i'm jumping ahead here but the uh the uh title character the uh is called christian mm-hmm. and uh i think there's a reason she's called Christian. Um, do you want to say what that do is? Do you want to get into that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, right. So this, so this is like one of those face transplant movies. This is like the, the face transplant movie, which became very popular subgenre in Catholic countries, especially. I, I think Nick Cage would beg to differ, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so in Spain and Mexico, there's loads of these. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, like, uh, uh, I'm blanking now. Uh, 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 Jess Franco, he, he made a couple of these. No, okay. Faceless and uh, one of the old films. But, uh, yeah, very popular in Spain. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think um, in Catholic countries, I, I'm speculating, mm-hmm. um, because the soul resides in the body right when the body is dismembered or disfigured or something happens to the body what how does it affect the soul 
Um, so this is one of the reasons that, like Cannibal and Zombie movies really caught on there. Like they did nowhere else. Ah, <laughs> ah that does make sense. I I think, but um, uh, she's Christian because she has no face, but she ha- retains her soul. Right. As opposed to her father, who has his own face but has lost his soul. Yeah. And as opposed to his companion Louise, whose face has been altered and she has no soul either. Um, yeah, she's just a henchman. Yeah, and and you have uh, Christian wondering uh, how much he's willing to sacrifice to get a new face. And she's seeing what's going on and eventually rebels against them. But she knows that rebelling against them, she's going to have to uh, lose something herself. She's going to have to kill her father or or do something terrible to him in order to get away from this and and to spare other women the fate he's been dishing out to them. Yeah, because she reaches a point where she is, you know, well, we don't know that she's compliant to begin with. Yeah. Because we jump in the story where she's already over it. Right. And she's having to wear these faces of other women and these faces disintegrate. So she's having to cover up that face with a mask. Yeah. yeah. This this movie, uh, the first time I saw it, because it had such a, such a reputation of being really uh, sickening. I mean, it, it was really in strong it, stuff. In its, its day, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, this made Scots people faint. Yeah. When it was shown at the festival there. And we do have a funny quote about that if you want to yeah, say it. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's true. That no. sounds more like something a English tabloid reporter would come up with. Yeah. Uh where where seven people fainted at showing at the Edinburgh Film Festival and uh the director uh Georges Fanjou is supposedly supposed to have said uh, that's this is why Scotsman wears skirts. That just it seems a little yes. too on the nose. Yeah, that's, that a, sounds like a homophobic thing. A, and a little crass. English tabloid writer would say. <clears throat> He's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. <laughs> Which John Lennon never said that. A comedian said that. But, yeah. You know, that's misattributed. But anyway, the first time I saw us, and you get to that, that spectacularly gory scene, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't impress me that much. No. Uh, first time I saw it, but. Well, seeing it now, like every every time, like uh, wondering what's going through her head. Yeah. And uh, so that, that scene, you can see how it's done. It's pretty obvious how it's how it's done. So right. you you can your mind kicks in and protects you from what's going on. Yeah. But then there's those that later scene where uh, it's a series of shots of the disintegration of the new face and mm-hmm. really. Yeah, that yeah. really nauseated me this time. Worst slideshow ever. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> she, she, you know, she's stuck in this face. Yeah, which is, as it rots. Yeah, and it's not her disgusting. own face. Yeah, it's it's all face. There's so much, so much going on that would really mess you up. And if and if the surgery were successful and 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 the skin weren't rejected, she'd be looking at someone else's yeah. face in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, looking out of a murdered woman's face. Yeah, the rest of your life. Yeah. What's crazy is the first successful face, face transplant was done in France. Oh. Yeah. So they never let go of this idea. No. This film was really, really stuck with them. Um, I pulled up a list, and, and in case any of these are movies that you wanted to reference, um, The Face of Another from 1966, mm-hmm. 
um, Three Seconds, also from 1966. Uh, let's see. We'll scroll past any of them that are in color or recent. It was I think the skin I live in is um, Amoldovar. Yeah, 2011. And uh, Franco did Faceless in the 80s. Yes. And then the awful Dr. Orloff, early 70s. <clears throat> Um, Dark Passage, 1947. Yeah, that was that's more of um, they reconstruct the gangster's face so that he can get hired in public. Yeah. So he's not taking someone else's face. Right. Go ahead. It's common for, you know, somebody to get the killer's face or the killer to get a new face. It's not quite the same, though. How many noirs do that? Like, well, Dark Passage, um, I mean, The Scar. Yeah. Um, not involving plastic surgery, but uh, I think Impact kind of plays with that. You know, somebody looking like someone else. Uh, yeah, like The Wrong Man is another good one. Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah, this this seemed like it was... Like in the um, kind of late 40s through 1960, there was a good handful of things relating to faces and plastic surgeries and all that. Mm -hmm. So what was your early experience with this, Julian? It seems like you've been with this movie a uh, while. I would have seen on British TV and it would have been cut a little. Yeah. Uh, it, until very recently, you couldn't see the uncut one in the US. Oh, weird. Just like the edit got done and then nobody yeah, they, they got back around? Yeah, they did an edited version and they called it um, uh, the horror... What was it? I've written it down here. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Okay. And it was put out on a double bill with the Manster. Oh, yeah. I think I have notes on that too. And uh, they, they cut the surgery scene and they also cut out the scene where... Um, Dr. Genessier is working at a hospital and he's taking care of this little girl. Okay. Because you didn't want him to be sympathetic if he's also a monster? Yeah. It's like okay. uh, you wouldn't see it in most horror movies, but, you know, there's this guy who's who's really taking care of people and helping people. You know that he's he's headed for his doom, so they're going to lose this excellent doctor. Right. To... Um, yeah, it's it's quite quite tender and affecting scene there. Yeah, th this is something about the main character. In most movies, they're happy to just make him a monster, mm -hmm. and that's it, or a madman of some sort. Yeah. But instead, we've got somebody who, uh, and I found a really good essay by a guy named Brian Eggert on deepfocusreview.com, and I highlighted and underlined a bunch of notes on this. And uh, one of the things he says, and I'm just going to paraphrase unless I can scroll to the exact note, but basically, um, Genessier, the doctor, yeah. is um, if he were successful, he would stop doing this horrible, awful thing that he's doing for his daughter. He would just go back to his normal practice and his normal life, and he wouldn't be a murderer or a mutilator or a body thief or whatever, you know, uh, the awful thing is. He would just go back to... Yeah, Franju has said um, he wasn't 
only he was he was asked not to make him a mad scientist because that would get him into trouble with the German censors. But um, yeah, uh, he was also not interested in that. Um, he was if if uh, if you have a mad scientist, you expect them to do mad things. But if you have someone who's rational, then it's more interesting to have them do these things which are really quite mad. <laughs> yeah, he's he's quite crazy. He's driven to desperation. Yeah, and he's he's also interesting because he's he's not. Um, you get the idea he's not really doing it out of love for his daughter. He's he's it's his he's, own guilt he's dealing with because he caused the crash. Right. Oh, because he was driving like a lunatic. Or yeah, and. Uh, you know, it's a project. It's his ego. He wants to get. See, this that's thing what perfected. I took it as. It was his. It was his ego driving him to perfect this more yeah. than his and daughter's desire to have a new face. Right. Although she may have had that. Yes. That initially she's seen the horror it's brought, but he he's willing to overlook yeah. that and, and be. He's a control freak as well. Yeah. So because yeah, there's yeah, scenes right super... where he comes back home and he's talking about the project and what he's going to do with his face changing and his daughter's just wandering around. He he doesn't interact with her at all. Yeah, she's just this ghostly figure that wanders around the upper stories. Yeah, she's secondary to what he's up to. Yeah, yeah. even though she is the subject of what he's up to, right. and she does. And I see this mentioned in a few different um, things that are written about this movie. She does have a ghost-like quality, like you said, and or a marionette-like quality to how she moves, how she carries herself, which is some terrific acting on her part. Mm -hmm. um, but you mentioned you mentioned this thing about how they they wanted to be careful about how they portray the doctor because the German market was going to be sensitive to anything that feels like Doctor Mengele or somebody. Yes. And before I read any of this, I'm watching this movie going. This guy's kind of giving me Nazi doctor vibes here, mm -hmm. you know, especially with his little little white rim glasses and, you know, he's pretty cold and, you know, unemotional and and is willing to do any horrible thing medically. It, it felt that way, even though they were not doing that. It still came across mm -hmm. pretty clearly. Yeah, yeah he was because you had this this no, the novel was written by uh, Jean Redon. Uh, and the producer handed him, Georges Franju, this novel as a project to do for his first horror movie because he wanted to do a horror film because Hammer movies had become really popular oh, okay. at this point. And uh, so, so yeah, he, he gave him this this story and he said, well, we're going to have to be, we can't do animal cruelty because the British censors, mad science because of the German censors, or blood because of the French censors. Yeah. And this novel has... <laughs> all those right so good luck <laughs> it also has necrophilia and it has a doctor caring for a young child so the americans won't like that right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, they they do um uh, mention in, in the essay i, I had uh, referenced earlier that uh um Let's see, what was it? The mad doctor was a drunk and his assistant was a madman who was on drugs and raped the corp the corpses uh, Franju described detailing the original scenario from uh, writer Randall Conrad. The doctor got arrested at the end and his daughter committed suicide at the sight of her father in handcuffs. It was too dumb for words. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> so he got rid of all that. 
because it was too dumb for words. I like when someone can be uh, that present and that clear about it and just not put up with it rather than be like, all right, well, we'll we'll just let Tom Cruise put his airplane gag in this movie and, you know. Yeah. (laughs) See Mummy 2017 if you want to check out what I'm talking about. So um, as far as... uh, Getting made, was this plagued with problems that you know of or uh, other than those limitations? Or was it just kind of greenlit and able to go? Because that's kind of what I wonder about with movies like this. Like, it had its limits. I don't know. Let me see if I can find anything on production here. Um, Well, yeah, it says Franju enlisted uh, people with whom he'd previously worked. Um, the cinematographer and oh uh, yeah, the uh, director of photography here is uh, Eugene Shifton, who did um, he he's the guy who invented the Shifton process, which is what um, we got. So you got the camera and straight line to the characters, mm-hmm. and then uh, about halfway along that line, uh, if you put a mirror at forty five degrees, and you put you cut uh, cut away the backing of the mirror so that the light just goes through it. Okay. Around where the characters are. Okay. So mm-hmm. now, most of the mirror is reflecting something at forty five degrees, but you've got the characters uh, being filmed on camera through oh. the mirror. Right? Oh, okay. So at forty five degrees to the mirror, you have um, a miniature or a painting, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be f- reflected on the mirror. So what the camera's going to pick up. In one shot, you know, as opposed to a process, right? Yeah. Uh, in one shot, you've got the characters and the and the miniature wow. background, whatever. So it's in camera compositing. Yeah. Oh wow! So this is a so this is this is a really cool process because most compositing you have a degeneration of the film as it gets piled, you know, yeah. various layers get piled up on top of each other. All the steps. Yeah. So this st- still works, and uh, I think the last time it was used was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh wow. Uh, but but now you can do it all digitally. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a really really cool idea. One of those really simple, effective ideas. Yeah, that is that is really cool. So he's he's got probably the top guy for cinematography for what he's doing. Yeah, and it looks wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And um, Maurice Jarre did the uh, score. Yeah, did uh, Lawrence of the Arabia. Yeah, we've got like. Uh, Oh God! This is just like he's—he's he's got. Then you have got the writers of De Abelique and mm-hmm. Vertigo, right? Yeah. So it—it—it it, it seems like uh, other other than uh, you know what the suits at the studio might do if it were an American film. Well, he's—he's he's probably got people who just go, well, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. The French are probably a little more like, I know what my job is. You should know what your job is. Rather than, I'm an executive and I've never made a film, but um, I want you to do this. <clears throat> the American way. You should fight a giant spider at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it got dismissed by French critics because they just couldn't conceive that a real director would do a horror movie. It was just below proper filmmaking. Mm, yeah. Which is probably one of the things that attracted him to it. <laughs> yeah, um... And I did read that um, the French, other other than, you know, 
unlike other countries, the the uh, the French don't just separate horror out as this less than they they include that in uh, cinema fantastique. I think they call it. Yes. So horror, now, horror, yeah. terror, suspense, all that stuff is yeah. fantasy. Everything now. Is, I mean, it, it's um, it's a shame there was some snobbery about it because, like, uh, the very first horror movies were French, the Georges Méliès. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. Films yeah. like The Haunted Castle and okay. stuff. So, but because that's snobbery, there's so little in the genre done. But when they did do it, it was really they did some really good stuff. Uh, and they also, also, uh, Georges Franjou didn't regard himself as uh, working in the fantastique. Um, he was more interested in, um, uh, he, he thinks like movies that show you fantastic things mm-hmm. that, that set out to show you fantastic things. Uh, he, he'd rather watch film. What, what he actually said was, um, he likes films that make him dream, not films that do the dreaming for him. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Um, so, so in this film you get these strange things happening, but they come out of something unusual happening in a mundane world Mm -hmm. as opposed to a really fantastical odyssey. Um, So, so you'll have these little things sneaking in um, that, that, you know, that's, that's kind of weird. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This this is not a police procedural as we're used to them. Like the, the, uh, the first time you see the inspectors get together, they're in the the office of the uh, missing persons bureau, right? And um, uh, uh, I think it's in the forensic scientist office. But on the yeah, wall, that's right. He doesn't have like medical pictures or anything like that. It's uh, these illustrations by Isidore Granville, who's like this uh, this uh, illustrator who did all these fantastical mm-hmm. etchings and so on for. French magazines, you know, hundred years ago. Um, yeah, it's just these little little things, weird things, creeping in, mounting up. <laughs> it's so cool that it's like, yeah, you you mentioned it, you know, police procedurals. You you're always going to get the same thing. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be like the bulletin board with all the junk on it and the phones and all the files piled up on desks and, you know, coffee sitting there. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it does like to run for you. Like the, the opening where you've got uh, Alida Valley, who you're all recognized from Suspiria. Right? Mm-hmm. But you know, she's driving along at night and you think, is she in trouble? What's, what's going on? Yeah. There's someone slumped in the back seat and you get a little tiny sliver of what their face is. It's like something's really wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then what happened? Then, uh, you're wondering who's the monster here, and and then good old Alida Valley drives up to the, the Seine and drags out the body and throws it in the water. <laughs> yeah. What's we're, going on here? Yeah, we're seeing a body disposal but, scene. Yeah, which yeah, that that's that's always a good start. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. Yeah, this um, this one, uh, I do like the fact that. A character could be doing evil things without being expressly evil. Yeah, that's a more interesting villain, isn't it? Yeah, because he, he's a villain, but not. He's he's got a, a a noble cause at at the heart of the matter, but is 
you know, a murderer in order to get yeah. to it. So he's, he's also uh, working on animals. Oh, yeah, the experimenting on animals is pretty terrible. Um, and of course, we'll we'll get to talking about the you know what happens at the end of the movie. <laughs> but uh, the police aren't inept. No, they actually seem to be kind of on their game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like a giallo where they they're kind of sidelined. Yeah. You know, they know what they're doing, but they're they're looking for normal things. Yeah, and this is anything but, which is kind of a nice twist, rather than just they're easily distracted or just bumbling. You know, they're they're doing a good job. And also, the man doesn't come to the rescue. Oh yeah, like the boyfriend Jacques. Yeah, he has a hand in, like, um, he helps to set up the sting. Yeah, but yeah, it's the woman who is the. Uh, has to solve things. Yeah. Yeah, this is um this is something where if you if you're going to follow the formula of your you know your whether it's other horror movies of the era or uh film noir any of that kind of stuff, this is going to give you a couple twists and turns that you're not ready for that you're not mm-hmm. used to, which is uh what was so refreshing watching a movie from that long ago and uh, newer movies just don't really do that. Usually um, this one was pretty refreshing that way, but 1960, we also got psycho, mm-hmm. which has a lot of tie-ins and that was pretty huge to just like throw people a curveball They were not expecting. Yeah. Peeping Tom. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What the hell was going on in 1960? <laughs> well, I mean, and it wasn't just here, and it wasn't just there. Um, but th- those are my—I'm finding those are my favorite movies where you where your expectations get subverted because mm-hmm. you start feeling like you know what's coming. Right, and this one has like echoes of vampirism in it, doesn't it? Yeah, because they're like feeding off the blood of young women. They're rich people preying upon poor. Yeah. Um, there's like the mirrors are covered. Okay. Mm, yeah. I didn't notice that. Yeah, that she goes into a room in the beginning <clears throat> and there's a big mantle and above it's just the frame and you realize, oh, that was a giant mirror. But, but it's just missing? It's just it's missing, blacked yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. And I also think the cemetery they go to is the the cemetery they filmed in in uh, Requiem for a Vampire, which is a Jean Ravan film. Oh, uh, okay. From the 70s. I'll have to check that out too. Because that, 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 there's a distinctive, uh, that little crypt they go into. Too. Oh, okay. Yeah, he does. It's not a comically small crypt like in uh, Plan 9. No. <laughs> <laughs> Made out of plywood. <laughs> yeah. You can see the pattern on it still. Yeah, so um so we have uh we have tie-ins with Psycho. And what was the other one you just mentioned? Peeping Tom. Peeping, Peeping Tom. Tom. Yeah. Uh any crossover as far as any writers or anything with that one or just similar subject matter? Uh who wrote Peeping Tom? Yeah, let, let me bring that, that up. Powell and Pressburger, wasn't it? I think so. I don't remember. It's a good movie. Yeah. I cuz they they were known for doing like Matter of Life and Death and Black wow. Narcissus and Thief of Baghdad and mm-hmm. 
uh, very popular entertainments and then uh, this sick piece of work comes along <laughs> and people are like what what are you doing and yeah it really hurt his career oh yeah and yeah, the top 100 uh greatest british films of all time <clears throat> the british film institute named this number 78 mm -hmm. nice uh let's see when um i was without a face came out in britain uh there, there was a really bad reaction to it it's just as bad as the french critics oh yeah, there was I this imagine. one woman who wrote for the spectator who, who said i kind of like it and everyone said yeah and she almost lost her job Jeez. <laughs> all right i don't see any names that look like they cross over as far as like the the main uh, crew uh let's see directed by michael powell written by leo marx um cinematography otto heller yeah, I don't see any tie-ins as far as, you know, crew. We should review that one sometime. Yeah, that would be kind of cool. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Yes. Yeah, it's been four or five years for me at least. It's been longer than that. Yeah. that I, I think I watched it somewhere. Eugenia and I kind of fell in love with that movie when I first saw it. It was like, wow, <laughs> this is sick and great. <laughs> yeah, Peeping Tom and Blow Up. I think I watched those oh, yeah. two like within oh, the yes. same week or month. <sighs> We almost bought a giant poster Post. of Blow Up. <laughs> nice. This is a, this guy's uh, vintage poster stand. It was it was huge. Yeah, huge poster. A subway poster. Uh huh. And we're like, oh my god, damn. Rest he had restored it all. It was, you know, pristine looking. Too too expensive to justify at the time. Yeah. And <laughs> where would we put it? <clears throat> yeah. It was bigger than any wall in the house. So. <laughs> well, then you have to consider making the subway poster that's mounted a scrim wall. Yeah. You know, just it's a big room divider. Yeah. You move the sofa forward, put it behind it, you know. Not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I, I've always wanted to make a room divider that was an accordion, like a shoji screen style, mm -hmm. like accordion. But like five panels, and I want it to be King Kong, that oh. promotional picture of him above New York, oh, where, yes. where the buildings are like shin height, the arms outstretched. Mm -hmm. I always thought that would be really cool. It uh, would have would to be, be five panels, because the middle one would have to have his face in it. Yeah. You don't want to land his face on a seam. No. And other you things. You have the arms kind of accordioned out. Yeah. You can move yeah. them in, you know, surround yourself. You know, park it around a love seat so King Kong's giving you a big hug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and other things about Eyes Without a Face, as, as we do in our show. So, yeah, 1960, what the hell was going on with all this? I mean, uh, freaking audiences out? Man. I guess because Hammer had kicked off and it really uh, upped the game in terms of what you could show. and Freaking out the squares. Shocking people, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, because you you wouldn't see bloody vampire movies in you know the Universal Studio tradition, and all of a sudden we're seeing not just blood in you know the vampire's mouth and on the victim's neck, but in his eyes too. You know this is like <laughs> this is bananas. So you're right, like they're they're kind of changing the game. So that's a good point. But uh, yeah, Psycho, you get. Um, <clears throat> what not even a third of the way through the movie and you your main character's gone and uh you're not sure what you saw but uh 
there's definitely this mother character controlling our main character who is a peeping Tom (laughs) and a lot of weird subtext and that thing where Hitchcock makes you, uh, change from horrified at what happened to rooting for the bad guy. That moment where the car almost sinks, but doesn't. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Please make it sink. <laughs> please make it sink. He's going to get caught. Oh, I'm a monster. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that had ever been done before, but 1960, we became the monsters <laughs> as well. Well, I don't know. Double indemnity <clears throat> route for the... Phyllis and, and Walter Knapp. That's, and, uh, that's true. They're horrible, horrible people, but you're like, oh my God, they're going to get caught. Yeah. I hope they get away with this. Right. This this insurance fraud murder thing that uh-huh. they're doing. Yeah. yeah. Damn, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't new. When, was that 47? 47, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that one is pretty choice, too. Yeah, Rafifi, is, that was in the 50s, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> that, that one needed... That's that's the great highest scene. Mm-hmm. It's like half an hour where you're just biting your yeah. fingers off, as opposed to a man inside or whatever. Yeah, we. I guess inside we inside have... man, whatever that thing was I talked about last. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah, we kind of have been rooting for bank robbers for a while, I guess, by this point, but usually oh, yeah. not murderers. Of course, the occasional bank robber will shoot somebody, I guess, and they die. But, but yeah, the, yeah. But a shower stabbing mama's boy—that's a different scene, man. Um, well, he's so good to his mother. <laughs> well, you know, a mother is a boy's best friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As the saying goes. Um, yeah, uh, corpse disposal. Um, did remind me of the Marion Crane, like the, 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 the driving scene. Yeah. That did remind me of the Marion Crane character in Psycho, you know, on her drive to escape her, uh, her theft that she did. Um, but there weren't any looming, like the detectives were not a threat in the main character getting caught or his female henchman. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have like that cop with the mirrored sunglasses and psycho no. who just kept showing up and showing up. Yeah. Louise in this is really sinister. She's uh, she's really creepy when she's stalking the woman and she's coaching her. She's Ghislaine Maxwell. I thought of that. Like, uh, what's his face is, um, Epstein's, uh, groomer. Oh, okay. Trafficker. Yeah. It kind of made, made me think of her. We have Zoe making a guest appearance on the show. <laughs> Little deerhead Chihuahua. She's given Will kisses. Mm. When when she's stalking her uh, at the theater, um, yeah. there's a poster for a Eugene Ionesco play on the wall. Okay. Is, uh, victims du devoir, victims of duty. Oh, is that a war picture? No, Ionesco was a uh, he was he was part of the theater of the absurd. I'm sorry, yeah, you said it was he a wrote play. Uh, Rhinoceros. Yeah. Okay, and uh, is there what's the deeper meaning to that one? Um, Assuming there is one, I can't remember that particular play. 
victims of duty. It, it starts with a there's a couple in a in their apartment, and they're talking about how all the plays these days are just detective thrillers. And then suddenly a detective shows up, and they're suddenly in a detective, detective thriller plot, and it ends up with everyone eating bread or something. I can't remember. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, this is the guy who wrote Rhinoceros, where people yeah. just start turning into rhinoceros. Oh, I, rhinoceroses mm-hmm. um, for no reason. <clears throat> oh, uh, yeah, it's just a surrealist play. I mean, you gotta love surrealism. Yeah. Um, there, there's a mention in that, um, in the essay that I read where it says that there's a, uh, a, a French literary tradition of facial masking and disfigurement. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought of that, but, uh, man in the iron mask, the laughing man, phantom of the opera. These are all yeah, yeah. In yeah. things penned by the French who deal with exactly that. Yeah. And they created the Grand Guignol. That would have still been going at this time. Yeah. What's that? That's a theatre which involves gruesome murders being performed on stage. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that began in the late 19th century. I think it went up to the 70s. Yeah. Were the murders real or portrayed? Portrayed. Portrayed. Fantastic. Snuff theatre. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like big red ribbons for blood. Oh, okay. I I saw one of them because they they had an evening where they had had a grungy old play. And then uh, afterwards they showed uh, Phantom of the Opera, the 1928 version, with a live accompaniment. Oh, very nice. Yeah. I like snuff theater. That's a great idea. Snuff theater. So, so the Mad Doctor was a was a staple of that because, uh, yeah, yeah. This particular one I saw had uh, someone getting their eye cut Poked out. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The French are into it. Um. So, <clears throat> the movie reaches a tipping point where um, the daughter just isn't having it anymore, mm-hmm. and and the the detectives have not succeeded in in uh, stopping the doctor, so she's going to stop him. Mm-hmm. Uh, she begins by killing the assistant, who is very surprised to be getting killed. Yeah, yeah, she sticks his scalp in her neck straight she's in her like, neck. Oh, and then collapses. <laughs> she's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she just kind of slumps down the wall and dies. It bleeds out. Yeah, yeah. It's like you stick it in the right place in the neck. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that would happen. And then uh then the uh the daughter's going to um loose the dogs on uh, her father. Yeah. And there's a Yeah, she looses the dogs and the doves, but yeah. I don't know whether she's intending to have her father killed. Oh, uh, she's at least turning them loose. Right. But she's going to leave at least if yes. not make sure he's getting killed and then leave, but um, of course, I always think of what Will says about the dogs look so happy to be filming a scene. Yes. You could see them running over to a trainer, like yes. they're just running around in circles. But the ones they, they did pretty good on this one. They right. did, but there is one scene where you see the dog running away from her yeah. down the hallway, yeah. and his tail is just gone. <laughs> He's like He's so happy because so he knows that trainer's got treats uh-huh. just off camera. Yeah. Um, but you know, knowing 
what we do know about filmmaking. I'm watching the doctor going, okay, how padded is he? Oh, he's pretty padded, but yeah. it's not terrible. If you're seeing it on a movie and you're like, holy crap, you know, it's 1960 and you're seeing this on screen and you're shocked to be seeing it. You're not going to be like, oh, look, that that's clearly like a police dog that's gnawing yes. on a padded arm. Well, they, they had to cover him with stuff that the dogs would like to lick and so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was thinking yeah, he was covered he, he was in gravy. He was quite scared when he was doing that scene, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a bunch of shepherds gnawing on you. Yeah. Meaning it. Like, no, they get carried away. Yeah. Take a chunk out dog mess you up. Yeah. When you when you see those police training uh, sessions on like the news every once in a while, they'll, they'll do a segment on something like that. Yeah, they have really good padded suits because those dogs are not fooling around. No. And I have to do a quick commercial for German Shepherds here. <clears throat> They're really smart dogs. Mm-hmm. My brother and I were like two and three and a half. My brother's a year and a half older than me. And we were goofing around by this bifold louvered door at the top of the stairs. Long flight of stairs to the basement. And the uh, family dog, Rex, our German Shepherd, he's a big guy, mm-hmm. um, saw what we were doing, knew that it was dangerous, and nosed us out of the way, like nudged us and nosed us out of the way and stood in the way of the door barking until my oh. mom came. Oh, well, that is a good dog. Yeah, my mom had no idea that we had figured out opening that door because there's some fiddling he had to do to get it to open. And there he was. So, yeah, smart dogs. Yeah. But they will mess you up. They will. <laughs> if, if you're on the wrong team. Yeah, I wouldn't want to fight a dog. No. No, not, not even a little. Uh-oh. I don't, I don't want to fight a small dog. You know, I don't think you could stop the dog from biting you. <laughs> no, that would be like the it thing. If it gets you, I mean, you punching it, it's not going to stop, I don't think. You have to stick your whole fist down their throat. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to work either. Or is that a shark? I heard that. I don't think that's going to work on either of those. <laughs> no, you punch a shark in the nose. It works on killer hillbillies. <laughs> that's right. Killbillies? <laughs> Oh man, that is a great name. The Killbillies. Kill yeah, the we... Beverly Killbillies. <clears throat> yeah, we should just become filmmakers, which we're unqualified to do. <laughs> and we'll write the thing, we'll make it, we'll act in it. <laughs> now I draw the line at acting in it. Yeah. Strictly behind the camera. Yeah. Well, you know, if you don't act in your first one, you should definitely act in your second one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you gotta you gotta be on both sides of the camera. Nah, you, you, a cameo. You, yeah, at a, most. A Hitchcocky. Yeah, a Hitchcocky cameo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would Dickensy do? That's what I always ask myself. If he were writing this, what would he do at this point in the plot? Um, yeah, the German shepherds were just just amazing. Um, uh, so uh, the daughter wanders off. What do you, what do we suppose happens to her? We have the, yeah, you don't know. Yeah, probably uh, get a terrific book deal. Yeah, but you have the doves as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're welcome, John. And there's Lou. a yeah <laughs> painting earlier in the movie yes. where she's holding a dove. Well, the, the first time you see her, it pans across a dove cage, and you're like, okay, she's a she's a bird in a cage, mm-hmm. but it doesn't labor it. Then you see her in a bed. And then about the middle of the movie, you see the painting Yeah, where she's, it's her, uh, it's this perfected image of her, which the doctor likes. And he's got her on the wall. It's like a trap butterfly. 
mm-hmm. and she's got the doves there. And then at the end, she releases the doves from the cage. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's poetry, you see. It's a poetic approach to filmmaking. And, uh, well, Hitchcocky did that in Psycho with um, yes. the, the, the candy corn. But this is, uh, is Franjoui. Franjoui. <laughs> Franjouesque. I would I would like Franjuesque better. Yes. Yeah, like Hitchcock did that. Um, Norman Bates is sort of this thin bird-like character. Mm -hmm. He's doing all this taxidermy of birds, and he's he's just kind of pecking at this bowl of candy corn. Yeah, and and he's he's done a bit of taxidermy on something else. Right. Yes. We don't want to spoil these movies from nineteen sixty. Candy corn is awful. (laughs) Right. So not you f- know he's evil then. <laughs> right. You're not a fan, are you? I hate candy corn. It's made out of earwax. It seems like it. It's it's really weird because like uh, once in a while I'll just be like, oh, I should buy some of this. It's almost Halloween. And you'll if you get a fresh batch of it, it's less wretched. Mm. It's still waxy. I don't, I don't think so. No? Just throw that shit right in the garbage. I own a slingshot. Why don't they make other candy corns, though? Why isn't there like a red and green and white one for Christmas, a pastel one for Easter? Um, because it sucks. I think so. That's. I mean, it's not a good candy. I'm not. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying I have bought it and eaten it and went. Oh, this is not as um, hard on your teeth as usual. Because I think they just roll it forward for a couple of years. Oh yeah, they made one batch in 1927. <laughs> Same time they made circus peanuts. Yeah. Both of those, they're still trying to get rid of inventory. You know, those are total well circus because peanuts... those were hot candies in 1927. Because candy sucked back then. You yeah, had things like you know methylated cocaine. Cocaine, yeah, <laughs> it's got you real high. Whorehound, but had very little sweet. To it, yeah, whorehound candy. Yeah, exactly. Ch- children would go into a candy store and be like, "Give me a whorehound." Yeah, yeah. It's vaguely minty. Yeah, it tastes kind of like medicine. It's kind of yeah, it's kind of herbalish, you know, herbalesque. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, 1927 rolls around, you get something with pure sugar like circus peanuts or candy corn. They were hot that year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those are some real dad candies, you know, like uh, licorice, candy corn, or not candy corn, uh, circus peanuts. Have you ever had salted licorice? No. It's good. Oh my God. It's the best thing ever. Uh, I think it's from Fendland. Oh, it's it's rough. It's like super, super sour, salty flavor, and then the licorice. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Not Mm. a good candy. And in the very core, there's a piece of preserved fish. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well be. It would perk it up. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, there, there's um, there's something they were doing. Uh, I'm trying to remember where I heard this, whether it was something on the news or on some entertainment program. But they were talking about how um, the the younger couple of generations coming up now, if they don't support certain products, those products could go extinct. Uh, you know, like, and I think they mentioned like canned soup, you know, like they, they just don't go buy cans of soup Yeah, as a generation. They just don't. And they're not going to have any, uh, sentimental feelings toward a, a bowl of hot tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich. Cause you know, they never ate that. Yeah. It's going to go extinct. Oh, wow. Doesn't every generation do that? 
Well, how do we still have circus peanuts, which are shaped like a peanut, but the, but they taste like a fake banana? <coughs> no, they taste like a real banana, but that banana almost went extinct, so we have a different banana. Oh, okay. Banana used to taste like that. Okay, so it's the taste of a banana, the color of an orange, and the shape of a peanut. Yeah. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But I can't explain the banana flavor is because that used to be how banana tasted. Weird. So but the Cavendish banana okay. got some sort of fungus. I don't remember. Yeah. But it almost went extinct. Mm. And so then they switched to a blood Whatever the banana is now, I don't know the name of that banana. The bland nana. Bland nanas, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I believe there's a blue banana too. Oh, I would. The taste of vanilla ice cream. I would eat that. Yeah, they're little. And yes. They're blue. Yeah, but I don't remember where they're from. Tahiti uh, or some somewhere. In Sri Lanka. Like... Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. What do they taste like? Were they like ice cream? Yeah. They're, yeah. They're a very different texture. Yeah. There's such a variety of bananas. Yeah. That you wouldn't know it. No. <laughs> no. To go in a group. If you lived in Britain or America. Yeah, you lived yeah. here. And hey. the first time you saw a plantain, you were like, what the, f- what is that? Yeah. What, what kind of nonsense is this? Yeah. And, and then if you ate one, you'd be like, okay, what is seriously going on here? Yeah. Did someone <laughs> cross a potato with a banana? Mm, plantain's pretty good. Yeah. Plantato. Plantatoes. Bland nana and plantatoes. <laughs> Tonight at the Mission Ballroom. No, those are both weed strains. That's that's true. <laughs> give they're, me they're give not... me an ounce of the blandana. It's bland nana. Bland nana. <laughs> and the plantato. <laughs> Tonight, Glenn Danzig with Plantato. <laughs> Is that what that said? I couldn't read it. <laughs> oh, I just want to see Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry I got your hopes up. Cause... Yeah. Somebody had some fake post about it being on Netflix. Yeah. It wasn't true. I was so disappointed because it didn't show up on my whatever Just Watch app. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know how accurate that is. Sometimes I look things up there and it says it's not available. And like Eyes Without a Face said was not available. Right. When I was going to watch it for 300. Uh, then then I happen to see, oh, it is available on HBO. It's Excellent. right. It's sitting right there and it's uh, the restored version and it looks so beautiful. Now, I, I did want to say this early on. Um, once in a while, I'll use that cliche every frame a painting mm-hmm. this is one of those movies mm-hmm. you know it's so beautifully shot that you could take a still frame of almost any part of this movie and you know print that put it in a frame on the wall and it's just a beautiful thing yeah even the more horrific things are still kind of pretty in this did anybody try to watch this <clears throat> though with their tv settings wrong mm, i didn't over dynamic <laughs> No, did you do that? things look like it's a play. Um, The weird frame rate thing happens on some stuff on this new TV. Yeah, I found that the TV I'm watching on has a filmmaker's mode, which I guess slows the frame rate back to 24 frames a second instead of the 60 that they've cranked it up. So, yeah, 
watching it when it first came on, uh, the lady's riding on a car and it looks just like she's sitting on a set in a non-moving car with fake rain on it. it uh, it's really bad. Very You're jarring. Like, very jarring. You're like, mm, I don't think I can watch it like this. Now, we both watched it for the first time as far as we know, right? Yeah, I had never seen this before. Yeah, uh, I, I suspected I may have, but didn't really know for sure. And then I realized, reading the description and looking at some of the stills, it's like, I'm mm, pretty sure I haven't. Yeah. And so I'm glad you picked it because this was... My first viewing of this was a week and a half ago or whatever. It was uh, so refreshing and so exciting to see something from 1960, something from France that was so satisfying and that you get an unusual ending. I think the French are the second best filmmakers after the Italians. Yeah. So are we a distant third or? Uh, Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, we'll, Canada's at the bottom of the list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Canadian listeners. If you and I've seen some Filipino movies that were wow. <laughs> uh, so you've not seen any of the Filipino Batman movies, obviously. I have not. I need to. Okay, I want to see Filipino Batman. I saw a Chinese RoboCop fight vampires. Jeez. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody should almost make just a supercut of all the weird scenes from those things because I'm sure that'd there's... be a long movie. It'd be real long, yeah. Because <laughs> you could just show boxes home and right <laughs> save yourself the trouble. But I kind of feel like you know, there's there's movies like that where you want to buy them and watch them, but then it's like, oh, but the, there's the whole rest of the movie. You just want to watch maybe right. a couple fight scenes or some ridiculous climbing and escaping and chasing and that kind of stuff. But you don't want to watch, you know, an hour and a half of Filipino Batman, do you? Yes. You do? Yes. Okay. I give it an hour and a half. Yeah. I give any movie an hour and a half. It's not I mean, unless it's really terrible and has Robin Williams in it. <laughs> the, only, uh, the only one I have is uh, James Bond meets Batman. Um, the one I really want to see, everyone wants to see, but it, apparently it's lost is... Uh, Batman versus Dracula. Oh man! Oh, that's I want that movie. That sounds like a good team up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we did we did talk about how this movie ends, and um, and and of course you mentioned the poetry that got us there as far as the doves and whatnot, and, uh, and the the uh, situation that the daughter is in with her crazy dad. Um, the ending, although unconventional very satisfying for mm-hmm. me you know on this being my first viewing of it uh i just want to watch this one like any of the good movies just watch this one once in a while and just marvel at it yeah so that being said uh recommends guys what do you say definitely very jo- high yep yeah, clearly julian you've got the, the criterion edition of it sitting right here oh yeah this is like the third edition of it i've had uh, yeah it, and i'm I think uh, Ziggy's got the previous one. Oh, cool, cool. She's got the DVD. I'll have to uh, remind her that if she didn't get around to watching it yet, because she has a real big pile of movies from hanging around with yeah. us, to definitely watch this one at some point soon. Um, Who's got the next pick? Jolien, I think you? Okay. Right. Yeah, it would be you. Yeah, we, we kind of bounced it a little <clears throat> bit, because... The weather did stuff, and the bad Zoom connection did stuff, so we're a little out of sequence, but yeah, you would be next. All righty. Um, so you, no pressure to what pick any... What shall I inflict on you? 
yeah, no pressure to pick anything now. Uh, but uh, just to let you know, you're next. All right, I'll see what's available f- that you can see. Yeah, when's Nope coming out? We we should go see that in person. Oh, yeah. I was going to July 22nd. You see, there was a fake poster for uh, Eggers Nosferatu 2 when went around last week. Oh, no, did... I didn't see that. Okay. Uh, okay, I didn't see that, but I did see a picture of uh, of a supposed, well, set picture of uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Did I have that right? Anya Taylor-Joy, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, of her on set in partial makeup. Okay. And I don't know if that was authentic or not. But somebody was like, I did a screen grab of it. Yeah, because his next one is The Northman, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he's started on Nosferatu yet. They have finished uh, production on Halloween Ends. You might be happy to hear. They wrapped it, I I heard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. (laughs) We're going to find out how Halloween ends. Turn out that Michael Myers was actually Laurie all along. There you go. Why not? Ooh. There you go. She's looking very pale. Yes. With she's already pretty pale. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the, just a normal picture of her. Yeah. All right, anything else before we get out of here? We all recommend this highly and um <clears throat> anything? No, I think right. that's it. Well listeners, thank you for listening. Stay off the moors. And don't eat no plantatoes. <laughs> don't eat no plantatoes. Or bland bananas. Future bananas. 